Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should, if anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Ayala, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone uh, to today's uh, Cancer Care Workshop, and today's program uh, is titled Emerging Treatments for Metastatic Melanoma, and this is uh, part two of a two-part series, and um, we're delighted to have you out on the call today. Uh, this is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other organizations, including um, the Melanoma International Foundation and the Melanoma um, research Foundation as well, and um, I'm really very delighted to have you all on the call today. And um, we uh, have, uh, and because of your interest in the call today, and because of uh, our collaboration and helping to spread the word about the program, we have over 425 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, China, India, and the United Kingdom, so a bit of a global call as well. Now, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and Pfizer. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Carvajal. Dr. Carvajal is uh, with the Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology. He's Director of Experimental Therapeutics and Director of the Melanoma Service, New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center, Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Carvajal is going to address an overview of metastatic melanoma, including staging and diagnosing, standard of care and emerging treatments, immunotherapy, targeted therapy, and the role of precision medicine, and clinical trial updates. It's now my great, great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Carvajal. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesder, and uh, to all the participants, thank you uh, so much for joining. Um, you know, as Dr. Messner said, uh, I've, um, I've spent a lot of time treating patients with melanoma, and um, I started um, working in this disease in 2004, and it's been a tremendous privilege, really, to um, see the progress that has been made in the field over the past decade or so, and, and see how much better patients are doing now, uh, thankfully, compared to uh, the situation um, back in 2004. Um, and certainly back when I started, um, you know, when patients came to us with a diagnosis of metastatic melanoma, our overall objective was really to try to control the disease for as long as possible. And more recently, with the advent of uh, the more... Um, targeted therapies, targeting BRAF uh, and other molecular targets, as well as some newer immunologic checkpoint agents, um, the goal is no longer disease control, um, and r rather the, the, the goal is cure. Um, and this, this has been a major change in, I think, the way we practice. You know, so the fact that we can see patients um, who have melanoma in the lungs, the liver, elsewhere in the body, um, and, and honestly be able to say to them that we have therapies 
um, now, uh, which which can cure you of the disease. It's it's just been a tremendous um, tremendous advance, and I, I'm just you know thrilled uh, at the advances that have been made and the benefits that um, our patients have had. So I, I guess the question, what I wanted to do um, in, in the 14 minutes I've been given to talk is, is how have we achieved those? Um, um, you know, what, what are the tools that we have now that allow us to make those advances? And I would, I would break those tools up into really two categories. One uh, is what I would call um, the, the targeted therapies. And as I think many of you are aware, um, there has been significant progress, not just in melanoma, but across cancers in general, um, at understanding the underlying biology of each patient's individual tumor. And by doing that, we're able to um, more precisely tailor the way we treat our patients based upon their individual cancer and the way it works. And it turns out that in melanoma, uh, about 40% of melanomas are driven by um, a, a, an activated um, protein called BRAF, where that BRAF protein is always turned on and it's always signaling the cell to grow and spread and do the things that we, we don't want it to do. Um, and it turns out by shutting off that protein or shutting off that BRAF pathway um, with pills um, that some of you may be aware of, like cobimetinib and vemurafenib, uh, dabrafenib and trametinib and so forth, by shutting down those pathways, uh, we're able to kill the cancer cell. Um, and so th that um, has been uh, one of the major advances, that is um, identifying the molecular drivers in patient's disease and just, just shutting that pathway off. Um, now, the, the other aspect of um, therapy that, that um, I think many of you are well aware of is, is the advances in immunotherapy. Um, and it turns out that cancer doctors have been working on trying to develop immunotherapies since the, the late 1800s. In fact, the, the earliest vaccine trials date from the 1880s and 1890s. Um, but despite you know, many, many, many decades of, of, um, of uh, research and trying to get these immunotherapies to work, it really wasn't until the development of uh, a drug called ipilimumab which was approved in 2011, and the subsequent approval of drugs like nivolumab and pembrolizumab, uh, where we were really able to meaningfully improve outcomes and, and achieve cures in patients um, with these agents. And these immunotherapies differ from the targeted therapies I talked about previously in that um, they're not uh, directly killing the cancer cells, but rather what we're trying to do with these new um, immunotherapies is uh, allow um, your own body's immune system to be able to recognize the cancer and eliminate those cells. And so um, with the use of um, nivolumab or pembrolizumab or sometimes a combination of nivolumab and uh, ipilimumab and so forth, um, again, uh, there have been dramatic improvements in outcomes. And so for patients who present with, with metastatic disease, um, it is absolutely standard of care now to make sure that mutation testing is done so that we know uh, whether the tumor has one of those BRAF mutations, which would um, give us the information that some of these pills might be an option or if it doesn't. Um, 
It's also, I think, the practice at, at my institution and I think at, at many, many other institutions to look at other genes of interest um, that um, may be mutated in a smaller percentage of melanomas. Uh, and, you know, what, what we standardly look at are things like mutations in a gene called NRAS, um, a gene called NF1, a gene called KIT, um, and actually even a number of other genes which are mutated in a smaller per percentage of cases, but still um, might connote sensitivity to other uh, treatment modalities. And so that is, that's an important aspect, I think, of, of um, how anyone with metastatic melanoma should be managed. We need to know that mutation status. Um, in cases where we do not have a BRAF mutation, um, the standard of care um, is a PD-1-based immunotherapy, PD -based immunotherapy. So typically it's going to be something like pembrolizumab or nivolumab. Um, and in some cases we might combine the PD-1 antibody uh, with ipilimumab, the other uh, immunotherapy. For patients who have uh, a melanoma that harbors a BRAF mutation, uh, th then we have the choice of either doing the immunotherapy or the targeted therapy. And w which way to go uh, is a um, um, right now decision that has to be made between the patient and the doctor. Um, as a field, uh, we do not yet know if it's better to start with the targeted therapies or start with the immunotherapies. Um, I think we all have our biases and certainly that's something that maybe we can address during the, the Q&A session. Um, but the fact is that we, we do not have studies that say starting with one uh, type of therapy is better than the, the other. Um, the, the decision as to um, which way to go um, in, in some ways is a personal one. Uh, I do think that there are some people who are um, who just favor the idea of trying to teach the immune system to fight the cancer and they're, they tend to lean more naturally to trying an immunotherapy, and there, there are others who prefer to try a targeted therapy. Um, another way to try to decide which way to go is to look at um, the effects of these treatments upon the quality of life and the potential side effects. Um, and some important aspects are that if you look at the oral inhibitors, the BRAF inhibitors, um, many patients, and I, I would say most patients who take those pills will have some side effects. Um, they can be managed with dose modifications or uh, dose reductions. Um, um, you know, but we do have patients who are on these for years and years, um, and so the tolerability is um, achievable. Uh, it just sometimes takes a little bit of work. Um, with those oral agents and those side effects, if you stop taking the pills, the side effects go away. Um, on the other hand, uh, the immunotherapies are right now all IV therapies, so you do have to come in to the doctor's office on some sort of every two-week, three-week, or four-week basis for IV therapy. Um, the side effects, um, if they occur, um, and this is another good topic for the q and I think, because the side effect management is very um, interesting and can be challenging, but um, those side effects can almost always be reversed. Um, but with these immunotherapies, we do see sometimes the development of um, uh, permanent effects, like effects upon the pancreas and the development of diabetes, or effects upon the thyroid gland or pituitary gland, uh, such that uh, you have to take hormone replacement therapy um, really lifelong.
Um, the now, despite the advances that we've been that that have been made, and despite the fact that we are able to cure patients with metastatic melanoma with these therapies, we are not curing everybody. And I think until we achieve that goal, um, we have to we have to prioritize um, the development of novel therapies and the conduct of clinical trials. And so that's why I think it's very, very important for all patients uh, or family members um, or friends of people with this disease um, to make sure that at least you discuss the um, potential uh, clinical trial options that might be available to you. And there's a whole host of very interesting and promising and important clinical trials um, being conducted, some of which are answering questions like the sequencing question. Should we start with the BRAF pills first or immunotherapy first? It's an important question, but you know, uh, it's, an, it's an important question. It's one that has to be answered. Um, you know, the, the other aspect is, do we have to choose um, between an immunotherapy or, and a targeted therapy? Um, and there's some very interesting and promising data saying that the combination uh, might be better than doing one or the other alone. And finally, um, there are a number of um, novel targeted therapies and immunotherapies um, that are being developed now, either alone or in combinations. Um, and these, these mechanisms, again, are very, very, very promising preclinically. In some cases, have very promising um, results in smaller clinical trials. And so the uh, kind, of, kind of experience in patients has to be expanded upon. And so I think um, at least having the discussion with your oncologist about um, what's available in, in your area, um, you know, if you're interested and willing to travel to a tertiary uh, center or a, a, a big melanoma research center, I think, um, um, you know, it certainly would be worthwhile to talk to someone who is heavily invested in uh, the, the drug development program within the field, just so you know what's going on. Uh, and you can make a, um, um, a well-informed decision as far as how to manage your disease. Um, you know, Dr. Messner, I think I'll, I'll close there because um, I, sus I suspect there'll, there'll be some questions later um, where we can delve into um, certain areas that I've touched upon already. Oh, excellent. Well, I, I think thank you enough, Dr. Carvajal. That was an outstanding presentation, setting the stage for the entire program today, so very comprehensive. And I know there will, as you pointed out, there will be more specific questions during the Q&A. And so all of you begin to think about your questions because we'll be, both our um, speakers are delighted to take your questions. Um, and our next speaker um, is Dr. Zinap Arolu. Um, she's a medical oncologist, Department of Cutaneous Oncology, Moffitt Cancer Center, Assistant Professor, Department of Onco Oncologic Sciences, University of South Florida, Morsini College of Medicine. And Dr. Arolo is going to address symptom, side effect, and pain management, tips for caring for your skin during treatments, follow-up care, and discussing quality of life concerns with your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Arolo. Thank you so much uh, for the invitation to speak. Um, so I wanted to start with um, regards to some of the questions that oftentimes come up with uh, side effects and then go from there. So essentially, um, 
for our patients, once you and your oncologist have decided on a treatment, and again, it's, it's important to have a good sense of the treatment plan for your melanoma, the goals and expectations of that treatment and side effects um, before you start. And the nice thing is oftentimes, um, you know, it's not an incredibly urgent situation where we have to start treatment, you know, the very next day after we first meet our patients. Typically, you know, we'll have uh, one to two weeks to get some additional information, some additional scans, blood work, kind of discuss some of the options, consider clinical trials. Um, and this could also give patients kind of time to evaluate their options, you know, get a second opinion uh, or potentially go uh, through screening for a trial. But it's important that by the time you actually start your treatment, you know, to really be well aware of the plan, the goals of the treatment, and again, have information on the side effects and to know that you can reach your healthcare team at, um, at any time. So focusing first on immunotherapy side effects, um, which Dr. Carvajal gave a great overview on, generally with single-agent immunotherapy, so for example, um, pembrolizumab or nivolumab, these actually tend to be pretty well tolerated. It's only about 10 or 15% of patients who can have some uh, significant side effects. To be aware, though, the risk of a significant side effect does tend to go up with combination uh, immunotherapy. You know, patients who are receiving ipilimumab plus nivolumab, for example, where this can increase to about 50%. So, essentially, as these immunotherapy drugs are making the immune cell, uh, the immune system more active against, hopefully, our cancer cells, sometimes they can stimulate the immune system actually to also attack healthy tissue, which can cause some of these inflammatory symptoms, technically pretty much anywhere within the body. So, for example, you can, um, with immunotherapy, you can have inflammation of the skin. That can lead to rash, itching, dry skin. Um, you can have inflammation of joints or muscles, you know, called arthritis, or liver, you know, what we call hepatitis. And this is something, you know, we uh, typically will get routine blood work done every time our patients come in for treatment, and we can notice, for example, elevation of, you know, what we call liver enzymes in the blood work. Or less commonly, but seen, pneumonitis, which is inflammation of the lungs, where our patients may present, you know, with a cough and uh, shortness of breath. Or inflammation of the bowels, you know, colitis, um, where patients can present with some, at times, some pretty significant diarrhea. And this is especially important to be aware of um, if you're on combination immunotherapy, you know, or with a, you know, any ipilimumab-based regimen. So also inflammation of glands that release hormones. For example, as, as already mentioned, the th uh, thyroid gland, you know, it can develop thyroiditis that can lead to hypothyroidism. So some of our patients, you know, have to be on just daily taking a thyroid uh, hormone uh, supplement like levothyroxine or the pituitary or adrenal glands that, you know, regulate our stress hormones, cortisol, they can become inflamed. And sometimes our patients have to be on just daily low-dose steroids like hydrocortisone. And there can also be some general side effects, you know, some fatigue, nausea, some decreased appetite with immunotherapy. Oftentimes, these immune-mediated side effects can actually be somewhat similar to autoimmune conditions that some patients may have, you know, conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel diseases. So, you know, if you're someone who actually already has an underlying autoimmune condition, um, 
you know, we generally have to take some extra precaution um, because you can actually have a flare-up of the autoimmune condition, um, you know, while we're trying to treat the melanoma with immunotherapy. So in these cases, it's important uh, for the oncologist to work closely, you know, with any um, provider like a rheumatologist or gastroenterologist who may be managing the autoimmune condition to make sure, you know, um, everything's closely monitored. And very rarely, um, you know, this will only apply to a few patients, for, but for anyone who has a solid organ transplant, like kidney transplants, and there's any consideration for immunotherapy, um, again, there has to be very close communication with transplant team and, and your oncologist because immunotherapy drugs could potentially lead to rejection of the transplanted organ. So I would advise that any patient, you know, in this situation should be treated, you know, almost always at an academic medical center given how complicated uh, these cases can be. With regards to timing, you know, some of the side effects are patients can get with um, immunotherapy. Now, oftentimes we'll have patients who feel great, um, you know, after the first dose, and then they say, oh, it's great, I'm tolerating it well, I'm not going to have any problems. But it's important to be aware that sometimes immunotherapy side effects can show up after several treatments, you know, several months into treatment, and some rare cases even at the end of treatment. So again, um, being aware of them and communicating with uh, the healthcare team is important. In terms of how we can manage them, um, some of them, you know, let's say uh, arthritis, joint aches, for example, we may be able to use some over-the-counter, like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, you know, Advil, ibuprofen, things like this that could be effective. Um, With skin, you know, with, again, rash, uh, dry skin, itching. Oftentimes, really thick moisturizers, um, emollients can be helpful um, for uh, our patients who develop a rash in you know, limited areas of the body. Topical steroids like, you know, for example, over-the-counter hydrocortisone can be effective. Um, antihistamines can be helpful with itching uh, that may develop. But in situations um, where our patients develop more significant side effects, then we may need to use oral steroids, um, like pills, like prednisone, for example, because essentially, you know, steroids are great anti-inflammatories. So they do help kind of dampen the immune system and can actually pretty quickly uh, relieve the side effects that the immunotherapy drugs can uh, can cause. So, for example, we might have patients, you know, taking daily prednisone um, and kind of tapering down the doses over a few, you know, three, four weeks. And the patient may have some, you know, multiple visits uh, during this taper just to watch for, you know, resolution of the symptoms, you know, monitoring with blood work visits. And rarely, um, if, you know, oral steroids, uh, steroids don't work, then in rare situations we do have to use really stronger immunosuppressants. So I would have to say, you know, essentially, again, communicating um, with your oncologist's office is going to be important because with some side effects, for example, diarrhea, you know, if you know about it early on, um, if your team's aware of it early on, you may be able to just manage with oral steroids versus, you know, in more severe cases, if it's been multiple days of just, you know, constant diarrhea, person's becoming dehydrated, can't keep any food down, then sometimes we do have to hospitalize our patients and do intravenous steroids. Um, when patients are on high-dose steroids, um, if this is needed, um, we do end up holding the dose of the immunotherapy, you know, like 
holding the pembrolizumab, nivolumab, um, because essentially the high-dose steroids and immunotherapy drugs are going to have the opposite um, effect on your immune cells. But uh, to be clear, you know, uh, if your immunotherapy drug does need to be held and you do have to be given steroids, that doesn't mean that the immunotherapy drug may not still be uh, quite effective for your melanoma. Um, essentially, you know, close to the end of these steroid tapers, if we have to use them for side effects, um, you know, we make sure that the side effects, you know, resolving. And then at that point, we'll generally reevaluate about, you know, is it feasible to reattempt the, you know, immunotherapy? Do we want to go back on it or do we just want to watch? And oftentimes that'll depend on, you know, the severity of the side effect, what it was, how quickly it resolved, is the person's melanoma already responding or not? So a lot of these will play into um, kind of what the next steps are. Having said all that, um, again, a lot of patients, you know, especially with, you know, just the single-agent immunotherapy drugs will do quite well um, in terms of uh, the side effect, um, managing with the side effects. Even some of our older patients actually can do quite well. And again, some of the side effects that could linger, as Dr. Carvajal already mentioned, is some of the effects on the thyroid, pituitary. So some of those, um, you know, we can have patients, you know, who've been off immunotherapy for their metastatic melanoma for many years, doing well, but just, you know, every day they still have to take, you know, daily thyroid uh, medication or a low-dose uh, steroid. Just turning briefly to targeted therapy, so with our BRAF and MEK inhibitors, um, like Vemuraf and Cobimetinib, Dibraf and Trametinib, these are actually fairly well tolerated um, as well. Um, they can have some general side effects, again, like some fatigue, joint aches, some diarrhea, nausea. Between the different BRAF and MEK inhibitor combinations, there can be some slight differences depending on which are prescribed. So, for example, um, the brafenamtrametinib, or also known as the brand name Stathenar Mechanist, um, is more prone to cause uh, drug-related fevers, important to be aware of. And oftentimes this can be managed with just something like, you know, acetaminophen, Tylenol. But sometimes, you know, our patients, you know, may need to take a, you know, a break from treatment or sometimes we may, we may need to actually utilize low-dose prednisone to help with these fevers. With the Vemurafenib and Cobimetinib or, or Zelbarath and Contelic is the, the brand name, and with this specific combination, the risk of some skin toxicities um, tends to be a little bit higher, so patients can get a kind of um, rash, sometimes almost acne-like in its appearance. And to be uh, to be aware of with and inhibitors, they can make um, a person's skin very sensitive to sunlight, so what we call photosensitivity. So you may be much more prone to getting sunburns, you know, even just walking from your car to the grocery store. Um, so you have to be quite vigilant um, with actually using sunscreen if you're on these pills. Um, sometimes, you know, wearing long sleeves, wide brim hats, um, reapplying uh, sunscreen, for example, if you go swimming uh, or if you wash your hands because, again, the, the, the sunscreen will come off your skin, so you do want to reapply. And sometimes you can also get actually uh, some other interesting skin lesions like squamous cell carcinomas of the skin that can actually develop as a side effect of using these pills for your melanoma. So again, oftentimes our dermatology colleagues um, will be quite uh, helpful with managing these. 
And also just to be aware of, targeted therapies can have some very rare side effects, um, specifically from the MEK inhibitors that are used, the cobimetinib or trametinib, um, that can affect heart so cardiomyopathy or heart failure, and that can affect the eyes, um, something called retinal vein occlusion. Um, so generally, we do recommend getting, you know, baseline, what we call, you know, echocardiogram, just an ultrasound of the heart, just to make sure, you know, baseline heart function is good. Um, and again, these may potentially be repeated a couple times while on treatment with BRF and MEK inhibitors. Generally, you know, if you haven't had an ophthalmology eval for uh, in a while, I think having an opto eval done at baseline before starting these pills could be helpful. Um, and again, these are rare side effects, but just, you know, important to be aware of in case, you know, all of a sudden you start to develop some visual symptoms, changes, for example, it's important not to ignore it. So I would say in general, it's good to know, you know, kind of what's your baseline and what's different and, and changing so you're able to communicate this. With regards to, you know, following up, um, Again, I think it's key just to be seeing your oncologist or your team, you know, physician assistant, nurse practitioner regularly. You know, appointments may be, you know, every two, three, or four weeks, depending on the frequency of the treatment with immunotherapy drugs. Targeted therapy, you know, may be a little bit less frequent because these are, you know, pills. But I would say typically at least monthly, um, especially at the start. And generally with these appointments, you know, you may have some, you know, blood work done. And then, uh, you know, when you're seeing your provider, reviewing, you know, blood results of lab work, side effects that you've been having, of course, are important to mention. Reviewing any um, new medications. Um, you may be going over scan results. I would say, um, as a small aside, for patients on immunotherapy drugs, um, it is important to let your oncologist know if any other doctor you may be seeing, like primary care, for example, or the doctors actually prescribes you oral steroids like prednisone, medrol, dose pack, um, for any other reason. We've had a couple instances where you know patients come in to get immunotherapy and some other provider just not knowing started them on, let's say, a metrol dose pack, and all of a sudden we have to hold that day's treatment, and, you know, they have to come back on another day. Um, I think, you know, once you leave your visit, it's just important to make sure you have a clear understanding of, you know, the treatment plan, that, you know, the questions that you may have had, and, and writing this down or writing these down could be helpful. Make sure questions have been answered um, and you know, you know when your next visit is, you know, imaging, things like this. And sometimes there may not be a plan, uh, you know, at the end of the appointment. There may be situations where there has to be, you know, multidisciplinary tumor board discussion. Um, so in some situations it may be, you know, one or two weeks um, before there's a, a clear plan made. So I would say, you know, if you don't, for some reason, don't hear back from your oncologist's office, um, just to, you know, always follow up um, with a call. Um, and, again, it's key to be able to know how to get a hold of your oncologist's office and how to reach them. Um, again, patients can always be seen in between their, you know, regularly scheduled visits if need to be. If side effects come up, you don't necessarily have to wait until the next visit uh, to bring up any concerns, symptoms, questions. Again, also to be aware of any after hours or weekends numbers. Um, it, generally, there's always on-call providers uh, that can be reached if necessary. For example, uh, you know, we may have patients that 
you know, travel a long distance. So if you do have to go to, you know, local urgent care or ER with the symptom and from your treatment, again, important to make your oncologist office aware um, and to actually be able to tell that ER, you know, doctor, provider uh, what treatment you're actually getting. Or if you can't remember, you know, at least having a card with the name, um, and again, letting the office know, um, your oncologist, because they may be able to speak with the ER team or urgent care team and kind of come up with a recommendation, uh, you know, on, on how to deal with the side effects that you may be having. And this is really important, especially for patients who are on clinical trials and potentially may be receiving, you know, uh, an investigational medication that, you know, an ER provider may not be familiar with at all. Also, some of our patients, you know, may have multiple oncologists, you know, who may, uh, you know, patients who may live far from academic cancer centers where they get treatment with the, their local oncologist and then, you know, may come in to see an oncologist in an academic cancer center every few months, um, you know, with scans, for example, you know, to make a recommendation on treatment. Um, I would say for these patients, um, making sure that the oncology offices, you know, both the, the local oncology office and, you know, the one at the Academic Cancer Center, for example, are communicating is important. So I would generally say, you know, maybe calling a day or two before your appointment just to make sure that uh, the office that you're going to visit has actually gotten records from the other cancer center, like, a you know, clinic note or imaging reports can sometimes save a lot of headaches because, um, without having updated uh, records, sometimes there's this, you know, last-minute scramble in the middle of clinic trying to get records from another office, and, and uh, sometimes that can lead to some delays in terms of uh, treatment plans. And lastly, um, just briefly with regards to quality of life, um, again, it's very important that, you know, these things should be discussed at every visit, things like, you know, uh, your energy, activity level, appetite, um, pain, and just, you know, overall well-being. Um, with regards to pain medications, um, you know, if they're prescribed, important to, you know, kind of keep track of how often you have to take them and how eff effective they are, how long uh, does the benefit last um, after you take them, how long does it relieve your pain for. And that can help your uh, team to be able to make adjustments. And sometimes in situations where it's just really intractable, difficult to control, um, sometimes supportive care um, consults or pain management specialists can also be, uh, you know, utilized to, you know, to really be able to help or sometimes radiation, you know, again, may play a role in terms of palliation of pain. With regards to energy, um, activity levels always important. I mean, the goal is that, you know, we hope for the most part our patients, you know, will be able to carry out their normal activities of daily living, you know, trying to remain as active as they can. And, you know, we do have patients who may still work full-time or go to school full-time, you know, while they're on treatment, you know, uh, you know, with with their work or school, you know, uh, working with them to accommodate their schedules. And generally, our patients, you know, who remain active, it, you know, they do tend to do better with dealing, you know, with side effects. Um, for things like, you know, decreasing energy, again, there may be reversible causes, you know, of these um, endocrine abnormalities. We talked about thyroid, cortisol. Sometimes, you know, if we recognize and, and uh, diagnose one of those, we may potentially be able to reverse um, lack of energy fairly quickly. Um, you know, with decreased appetite, sometimes 
People may need to supplement with things like protein uh, shakes, things like this. Sometimes a dietitian can give some recommendations. And ultimately, you know, if, if there's really a significant impact on energy, appetite, sometimes we may need to take a break from the treatment. You know, we may need to adjust doses or hold doses. And again, uh, lastly, you know, mood, um, you know, a lot of uh, just overall well-being, a lot of patients can understandably experience, you know, depression, anxiety. Um, that's quite normal um, for both the patients and, of course, you know, family members, loved ones. And, and oftentimes, you know, cancer centers could have support groups or other resources, you know, or, you know, they may be, they may be able, to, able to consult a therapist, you know, to be able to give additional support. So I think it's important to bring bring these things up during the appointment and, to again, not to, as, not to hesitate to ask for help. So... Hopefully, this has been a useful overview of some of these topics. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Emerald. That was wonderful. Just very comprehensive, and actually, and um, and actually, you ended by talking about the need for support. And I'm just going to say a few words about the supportive services that cancer care offers. But I do think that Dr. Emerald made an excellent point that many of your centers have some social work staff there or supportive staff there that can help you. But I do want to say a few things about the services you can access from Cancer Care. So this program today, of course, is an education workshop. We have wonderful speakers today, and we do lots of these programs. We also offer a lot of other services, and they're all available at no cost. So we do offer um, practical and financial assistance to people, and, of course, there are lots of issues around transportation and home care, child care, a lot of issues that people struggle with, costs of care that we, um, you know, that we all, um, that we can assist you with. So it's a good good place to turn to. We're a national organization. Um, we also offer uh, counseling services, which has to talk with one of our on trained oncology social workers. We do have a helpline that you can contact, 1-800-813-4673, and speak directly with one of our staff here um, about your concerns and decide whether you'd like to have um, a counseling service, either counseling on the phone or online. So we do both individual counseling and we also have telephone and online support groups. We have over 120 online support groups on many different topics and, um, and those groups are, um, they're very nice also for people all over the United States, but also for our international participants as well because they are not, people can post any time of the day or night. The oncology social worker will be checking the posts at least once a day or twice a day, um, but it means that you have a, a community of support um, for you, um, and some people find that very helpful. Um, so th for those groups, you can register online for those. You can go to our website, www.cancercare.org, and one of our staff here, one of our oncology social workers, will contact you and will uh, describe to you about the group and what's involved so you have a sense of all those details, both for the telephone and online support groups. And the same is true for the counseling. You can either contact us by phone or you can also um, let us know on the website um, that you would like to have some support services um, and we can, you can access some of that way. In addition, we do have a very uh, robust website and also, of course, lots of publications and informational materials as well. So with that being said, 
we do now have time for lots of your questions. And so, and some of you are already queuing up for questions online, but I'm going to ask um, Ayala if she would explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, because some of you may not know how to do that. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we do not get to your question, then what we'll do is we will at the end, I will describe ways that you can get your questions answered, so you don't, don't leave the call feeling like, oh, I didn't get to ask my question, now what do I do? So, um, Ayala. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then 1. So we have questions from um, uh, online participant. Um, so I'm going to direct the first question to Dr. Carvajal, um, and that question is, how do you decide on using PD-L1 as monotherapy or in combo with Hervé? Dr. Carvajal? Yeah, so that, that's an excellent question. The, um, so, you know, what we do know is that if we do a combination of an anti-PD-1 antibody, like pembrolizumab or nivolumab, with Yervoy, which is also called ipilimumab, um, the response rate is better, so the likelihood of tumor shrinkage is better, and, and overall outcomes are a little bit better as well in terms of, you know, how people do in terms of survival and stuff. But the, the, the problem with that combination is the, the side effects. Um, um, you know, the way that the combination regimen is given, you get both drugs um, IV every three weeks for four doses, and then um, if all is going well, then you get additional nivolumab every couple of weeks subsequently. But it turns out that only about a half half of the patients who we try to treat with combination are able to get those four combination doses, um, and the other half can't get it because of the development of side effects. Um, it also turns out that if we do the combination, um, over two-thirds or over three-quarters of patients actually will end up in the emergency department or in the hospital for some, um, um, some um, side effect. And so... Um, you know, the issue there is, um, is the potential for added benefit worth um, the, that kind of worse side effect profile? Um, and that's, that's something that we actually, uh, we do kind of, um, as, as um, physicians and clinicians, we do, we do struggle with what is the right balance. Um, I think that um, given the um, kind of the magnitude of the added benefit in terms of survival, which is which is, is it's there, but it's modest, uh, and given the known side effect profile, um, and um, given the fact that we can always do a combination therapy um, later if we opt to start with a single agent, PD-1 antibody first, um, you know, many of us in the field are now, um, in most cases, uh, recommending going ahead with single agent PD-1. Um, seeing how we do, and then, then if there's concern based upon scans and we need a little bit more, then uh, we can add switch over to the combination subsequently. Um, the, um, um, and so I guess, so, so the question is, so there's, there's not one um, right answer for everybody. Um, and in fact, I saw a patient yesterday who we actually had a, a you know, we had exactly this conversation, um, and um, um, and although my recommendation was for a single agent PD-1, um, in, in this patient's case, he wanted, he felt very strongly that he wanted to be as aggressive as possible. 
despite the side effects. And um, and for him, because of his kind of outlook on how he wanted to address the disease, um, you know, the combination was the right choice for him. So it, it's it's a very much an individualized decision. Well, that's excellent to hear, and that's important for people to have those conversations. And um, uh, thank you. And, and Dr. Um, Rolo, do you want to add anything? Um, Right. So, no, that was a great, um, a great overview by Dr. Carvajal. It's oftentimes we will consider the same factors. Um, a couple situations where um, potentially we may be more willing to consider a combination immunotherapy with, you know, ipilimumab and nivolumab, um, maybe in cases of patients with metastatic melanoma with brain metastases. There's been some data that uh in that uh, in that field where potentially the uh response rates um for intracranial meaning you know metastases within the brain that they may be more likely uh to respond to combination uh immunotherapy uh than single uh single agents so um uh, in those situations again we we definitely have a discussion about doing ipilimumab with nivolumab together um, in patients who have, you know, very symptomatic tumors, very, you know, painful tumors, and for whom, you know, the BRAF-targeted therapy, which, you know, as discussed, those two, those do tend to work quickly, um, but for patients for whom that's not an option, um, then, again, we may lean a little bit more towards combination immunotherapy in that case just because we know um, it is more likely to significantly shrink uh, the tumors. But um, oftentimes, um, you know, for a lot of patients, just single-agent, you know, nivolumab or pembrolizumab or, of course, a clinical trial that may potentially be adding a different type of, you know, investigational treatment to that anti-PD-1 immunotherapy backbone um, will be our recommendation. Excellent. So really tailoring it to each person, it sounds like this is really very important conversations and for people to have. Thank you. This is excellent. And we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, what percentage of patients, well, actually, um, I'm going to give this question to Dr. Um, um, Erola to start. What percentage of patients typically discontinue treatment, targeted agents, and PD-1 blockers due to the side effects of treatment? Sounds like a continuation of this. A different person asking the question, but still... The question about the side effects. All right. So it's a good question. Um, it'll depend on the treatment. So, for example, with immunotherapy, um, with it's going to be some differences between single agent versus combination. So again, um, with pembrolizumab, nivolumab alone, um, it's generally around. I think some of the numbers are around five percent or so. Um, you know, who have to actually. Uh, discontinued treatment because of side effects, which is actually fairly low. But, for example, with combination immunotherapy, you know, nivolumab and ipilimumab, as we were just discussing, because the likelihood of a uh, more severe side effect is higher, um, those patients, I think it could be potentially up to 30% or so, um, who may need to uh, discontinue treatment um, for the side effects. But um, as we've seen, it's still possible to actually have um, prolonged, you know, durable responses, um, uh, you know, with immunotherapy drugs, even in patients who do have to discontinue them um, because of the, the side effects. And uh, Dr. Carval, do you want to add to that as well? Yeah, I think, yeah, there is, there is a, a marked difference in terms of... Um, 
the discontinuation rate, I think, between immunotherapy and, and the targeted therapies. You know, with, with the targeted therapies, the combination of a BRAF and a MEK inhibitor, um, you know, in general, um, if, if you look back to the trials, the likelihood of having to stop due to side effects was seen in, like, between 10 and 20 percent of, of um, patients treated. Um, um, and that, that's important because, um, you know, even if the disease was under control with the inhibitors, um, once you stop, um, more likely than not, the disease will continue to grow. Um, but as you just heard, it's different with immunotherapy, particularly if you look at the combination immunotherapy where, let's say, you know, 50% of patients can't uh, complete the four doses of the combination immunotherapy. In fact, if you look at that patient population, those who actually have to stop because of some sort of side effect, if anything, they actually do better <laughs> than the folks who um, were able to continue. Um, so, so it's interesting that the likelihood of discontinuing might be higher with, let's say, combination immunotherapy, but the benefit may persist despite that. And, um, you know, with the targeted therapies, the likelihood of having to stop due to the side effects might be a little bit lower. Um, but if you have to stop, the disease will likely grow. Um, so it's an you know, again, that, that may play into the decision-making as to uh, which sort of regimen to pick. Excellent. These are excellent questions. Um, and we have another online question. Um, and I'm going to give this question to Dr. Um, um, Irolo. Um, is it normal to have extreme fatigue on treatment? I'm on Optivo. I've been sleeping 15 to 18 hours a day. Does it get better as treatment continues? So, so certainly immunotherapy, you know, Optivo or, or uh, nivolumab um, or pembrolizumab can cause some fatigue, no question. But, you know, that amount of fatigue, I think, would also make me, con you know, suspect is there some type of underlying endocrine abnormality that uh, a patient may have developed, you know, for example, um, has a person potentially become very hypothyroid, um, uh, which, you know, we said could be caused from immunotherapy, from effects on the thyroid gland, and um, and hypothyroidism, uh, you know, can cause significant fatigue, or um, similarly, you know, is there an effect on the pituitary inflammation of the pituitary gland, or what we call hypophysitis, or on the adrenal glands, you know, adrenal insufficiency. Um, so I think, uh, you know, having uh, the treating oncologist, you know, potentially, you know, investigate these things, and, and typically when we have patients who report that degree of fatigue, oftentimes, you know, we want to make sure, you know, what were their last uh, thyroid labs, and oftentimes we'll check these, you know, every visit or every other visit, you know, uh, labs like TSH, free T4, and also ones that we don't always check, but typically just check at baseline uh, to look at um, how well the, the pituitary or adrenal glands may be functioning, like ACTH and cortisol levels. And again, these are all blood tests um, that, uh, you know, an oncology office can order to potentially investigate um, further causes. Because again, you know, if, if that is the issue, then potentially those could be reversible and, you know, starting, for example, low-dose uh, steroids in patients, you know, who've developed hypothyroidism, you know, inflammation of the pituitary gland where their body's not releasing enough cortisol or stress hormone, when you 
start the steroids, um, they can actually start to feel better very quickly. So I would, you know, I would make sure that some reversible causes, you know, are looked at uh, closely before, you know, this degree of fatigue is just attributed just to the drug. And you know, I, I, so I think some further testing may be in order. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Kahal, do you want to add anything? No, I, I would agree. I think um, the bottom line that that degree of fatigue is not expected really with with the PD-1 inhibitor, you know, unless there is some sort of endocrine side effect. Um, you know, and just, just to kind of add, with the PD-1 inhibitors, um, um, you know, it, it, they, they are generally well tolerated. So I do, we do see some mild fatigue with continued use, and that, that can happen after months of therapy and mild joint aches. But again, um, you know, 18 hours of uh, in, in bed is, is not expected with this. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, the question um, from one of our online participants. Um, just, um, this one would be um, for Dr. Um, Carvajal. Um, uh, where, do I, where do I find clinical trials for metastatic melanoma that has spread to the lungs? What are the criteria for admission into a trial? That's an excellent question, and it's, it's actually a very hard question to answer. Um, the, the resource I think that many of us use is, is an online resource. At, um, if you have a pen, it's www.clinicaltrials.gov, G-O-V. Um, and by going onto that site, you can actually just search for clinical trials for metastatic melanoma, um, and you'll get a very, very long list. Um, um, in terms of um, eligibility in, in general for these trials, um, e you know, each trial will have specific eligibility, so it's very hard to, um, you know, uh, um, so every trial has its own eligibility. But in general, I think um, uh, um, candidates have to be healthy enough um, <laughs> to, to fit the trials. It's a little bit of a, it's a strange thing. You, you, you know, you, you have... You know, you have cancer, um, but you have to be healthy with cancer uh, to be eligible for these trials. Um, the, the blood work has to be relatively normal in terms of um, your white blood cell count and your red blood cell count and your liver and kidney function has to be fairly normal. Um, and that's, that's going to be true for, um, for most of the trials. But other than that, um, it's, it's, it's um, very much trial-specific. Um, there... There aren't, the majority of the clinical trials for patients with metastatic melanoma are not targeted towards uh, patients with melanoma in the lungs versus melanoma in the lymph nodes um, versus, you know, maybe melanoma in the liver. Rather, um, there, there are trials for patients who have melanoma that can't be resected with curative intent. Um, uh, I think the, the larger question, though, is how do you pick which is the right trial for you? Um, and that, that's actually a very, very hard trial, a uh, very, very hard question. Um, and, and that's why I do think it's useful to speak to someone who's kind of, um, you know, actively involved in the field as to what, what are the priority questions, what are the priority trials. Um, and in general, um, the priority questions are going to be questions that are being um, asked in, in what we call a phase three clinical trial. Um, and so most of the phase three trials, those are, those are the big trials uh, where um, pa patients are randomized to either what one would consider the standard of care therapy, 
versus the novel, the new treatment. And it's important to know that everyone gets um, at a bare minimum what they're supposed to get, and some patients might get a little bit more. There's no placebo there. Um, and so in, in general, um, the phase three trials are the ones that, um, for which there's the most um, promising early data supporting it. And, and so that's, that's one way to kind of search. Um, you know, when, when, I, when I see patients, um, um, you know, a lot of the trials that are done at um, my site or down at Moffitt um, are looking at earlier stage trials, phase one or phase two clinical trials. And these are very much earlier trials where um, we, don't, we don't have, we haven't treated thousands of patients. Um, these are trials where uh, we very well may be um, trying these treatments for the first time in people. But because of the rapidity of the development of um, some of, of these new immunotherapies and so forth, and because in many cases um, these regimens are being developed to um, enhance, um, you know, the, the effects of PD-1 antibodies, um, in, in many cases these phase one trials are looking at a new agent in combination with nivolumab or pembrolizumab or something like that. And so um, I, I actually do think it's very reasonable. Um, to consider um, even a, a phase one trial um, looking at a novel agent in combination with what would be standard of care, PD-1 or PD-L1 antibody. Um, again, back to the question, which trial to do? Um, in general, I like to present what the reasonable options are um, to the patient and then see what's feasible for them. Um, it's only going to be in rare cases that I... Um, believe that there is an experimental trial for which patients have to travel very far. Um, and, you know, we do have patients who travel from, um, you know, California or, you know, the guy who travels here monthly from Paris for, for some of these clinical trials, but these are very specific indications. I try very hard uh, to, to try to see what's available near where the patient lives that is reasonable. And worth trying, and then um, and then recommend that that option. So that was excellent. a long answer. <laughs> Sorry about that. That was an excellent. Well, that was really quite an excellent answer. I think. Uh, thank you very much. And um, these are really great questions. And um, I think um, you can see our speakers are really giving you as much information as they can um, to help you with that. And there are actually just before we and there are two more questions. I'd like to um, see if we can't um, fit in. Um, so I just wanted this one um, question. I want to give that to Dr. Um, Erlu. Um, I'm confused about C-Kit, M-E-K, and BRAF. Can you explain the difference? Can you have more than one of these? So, you, um... so the question is about um, between C-Kit mutations and BRAF uh, and MEK mutations. That's so. Essentially, um, it's, it's a great question, and oftentimes we will do um, mutation testing on tumor specimens. Um, you know, at the time uh, we may see patients with metastatic melanoma. Um, really briefly about CKIT uh, mutations, which uh, we haven't talked about too much, but these are fairly rare. They do tend to be um, more often seen in less common melanomas like um, uh, mucosal or acrolentigenous melanomas um, that, you know, don't start on the skin but may start in the mucosal surfaces, uh, surfaces um, inside the body or, you know, in your fingernails, uh, palm soles. So, 
Um, but these secret mutations, um, I think it's around 20, 30% or so of the time, could be found um, uh, within that uh, more rare type of melanoma. Um, and there are there's some research done that, that was look, looking at use of medications like imatinib or, and others to potentially target this secret mutation. Um, the research with that, um, you know, it's it's been equivocal. There's been about you know likelihood of response is about 20, 30 percent. So it's certainly you know in, with a patient whose melanoma has a secret mutation, um, that wouldn't really impact our frontline treatment. Um, you know, I think we would still consider frontline immunotherapy um, for that patient because oftentimes they won't, their tumor won't have a BRAF mutation, but potentially if they're in a situation where, you know, immunotherapy's not worked or it's not tolerable, they're, you know, they're, they need another line of treatment, then there the secret mutation may potentially play a role and, you know, we may possibly consider um, use of these medications like imatinib and others, which is essentially off-label use of these medications because they're actually approved for um, different cancer types, not specifically for uh, metastatic melanoma. Um, and again, there may also be clinical trials um, that may be targeting specific uh, genetic mutations like CKID and, and others that a patient's melanoma may have. Um, the BRAF uh, mutation, again, is a lot more common. That's generally seen about... 45, 50% of patients with metastatic melanoma. I will say that the frequency it does tend to be more commonly seen in younger patients with uh, melanoma as opposed to older patients, but it is possible, you know, at any age. So, um, you know, we always check for that. Um, and again, having the tumor having a BRAF mutation means that there are, you know, these FDA-approved BRAF and MEK inhibitor treatments um, that are options for patients uh, whose melanoma has uh, this uh, BRAF mutation. And again, there may also be clinical uh, trials that are specifically targeting patients uh, with uh, whose tumors have a BRAF mutation. So essentially, it's a nice alternative. Um, option to have to uh, immunotherapy, you know, if your melanoma happens to have that BRAF mutation. Thank you. And our last question for Dr. Carval is, um, so what is the difference between NED and remission? Why does my doctor say NED instead of, 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 uh, of remission? If you could, I know evidence of disease, if you could comment yeah, on that's that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's, um, and both in, in general, the terms are going to be used um, interchangeably. Both of those terms are, are basically going to mean that um, based on examination and scans, uh, we can't find any evidence of any active cancer inside. Um, and so we do use them inter interchangeably. Okay. Excellent. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been superb and very comprehensive and really um, I, I we just really can't think, thank you enough. It's just outstanding. And I also want to thank all of you who asked such really great questions um, online. Those are wonderful questions um, and excellent questions as well. Um, and I um, also want to thank all of you who've been listening. And I do, I did say I would let you know how to get your questions answered if you still have questions. And I think many of you do. There are some of you still in queue. So let me give you some ideas of how to get your questions answered. Um, first of all, of course, we always want you to consult with your healthcare team. Of course, they know everything about you. They have all your records. But I know that many of you like to search out information other sources. 
So um, in terms of clinical trial information, uh, Dr. Carval has given you information, and we will give all the, any resources we've given during the call, we will send that to you when you get your evaluation at the end of the program. You will also get a whole list of resources so that you'll have the numbers and all that information that you need at your fingertips. But I would say that uh, for clinical trial information, www.cancerclinicaltrials.gov is a wonderful resource, or www.cancer.gov. They're wonderful resources to get information. Um, And they also have um, a website. The um, National Cancer Institute has a website, NCI. Uh, It's uh, www.cancer.gov. And that website has a live chat feature in which they will give you all sorts of information. The information specialist, you can pose your question, and they will address your question in, in great detail. I'm giving you the answer to your questions, and you can then take that information back to your treating healthcare team and see how that applies to you. And I think that also applies to the program today. You've learned a lot of information, but you want to have it customized to you. I think in a number of times it's tailored to you, so again, you would take it back to your treating healthcare team. Um, and for those of you who would like to pursue further support and counseling and practical assistance from Cancer Care, then go ahead and call us at our toll-free number, 1-800-813-HOPE, or for those of you who are actually um, international or like to contact us um, online, you can go to our website, www.cancercare.org. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone. I want you to know that you're now part of a large community of support. There are many organizations out there to support you. And I do, also, again, want to call out to the International Melanoma International Foundation and Melanoma Research Foundation. They're both really um, organizations that you can also tap into for, in, for help and, resor- and, and, and support and information, and we will be sending their information to you again as well. And we do have some programs coming up. One in particular I'd like to point out to you. It's Current Perspectives on Cancer Survivorship, which I think you would find very interesting. It's on Tuesday, June 19th, same time period, and so um, and we have a whole bunch of other programs you might find interesting as well, but I just wanted to highlight that one. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, I want to wish you all a very fine day, and uh, everyone take good care. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.